During the latter half of the 20th century, it's arguable that America's most influential Catholic clergyman was not a bishop or even a cardinal, rather a university president. Father Theodore Hesburgh, president of the University of Notre Dame from 1952 to 1987, and then president emeritus until his death in 2015. But who was Father Theodore Hesburgh? And how did he shape Catholic higher education and Catholic political life in America? Today we'll discuss these questions with Father Wilson Miss Campbell, who is the author of the book, American Priest, The Ambitious Life and Conflicted Legacy of Notre Dame's Father Ted Hesburgh. I'm Father Dave Pavanka. I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching University Presents. Stay with us. Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Father Dave Pavanka, and I'm president of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. And we're talking today about Catholic education in America. And I'm joined by our panelists, our regular panelists, Dr. Regis Martin, how are you today? Fine, thank you. You're doing well. And Dr. Scott Hahn, uh, both uh, professors here at Franciscan University, and we're always pleased to have them as a part of our panel. But we're particularly excited to have Father Bill Miss Campbell. Uh, Father Matt Miss Campbell is a priest for the Congregation of the Holy Cross. He's a native of Australia. He studied at the University of Queensland and the University of Notre Dame being, before he was ordained to be a priest in 1988. And he's been part of the University of Notre Dame faculty since then. Uh, Father has written multiple books, but the one that we want to talk about today is the book that he wrote on Father Hesburg, uh, American Priest. So it's great to have you with us. I've, I've enjoyed uh, reading what you've written and just getting to know you a little bit. So why did you write this book? Well, a pleasure to be with you, Father Dave, and to your distinguished panelists. I'm grateful for the opportunity to be here to speak about the book. Uh, I wrote the book with, in some ways, multiple purposes in mind. I wanted to tell the story of Father Hesburg, of course, but not just to tell his story as a person. I felt if I told his story, I would be able to shed light on larger stories of the history of Catholic higher education in the United States over a four or five decade period, really from the, from the 50s onwards. And also, I wanted to tell his story because as a priest, he was so involved in American public life, and I thought I would be able to reveal something of the journey of Catholics in the United States in the sort of post-war period. And as well, he was uh, engaged with various popes and various church issues. I thought I could shed some light on how he intersected with those issues over a period of time, these issues like civil rights and the life issues, so on. So I had these multiple uh, purposes in mind. I hope I managed yeah, to yeah. tell some of them uh, at least moderately well. I hope your viewers uh, will find what we talk about here today of uh, some interest. Oh, I, I think so. And, and believe me, I looked, I did more than just looked at the pictures. But if, you, <laughs> but if you look at the pictures, you see pictures of Father Hesburgh with all the presidents yes. from, from the mid 60s, early 60s, yeah. and all the popes in that entire time. I mean, 
really influ influential person in the Catholic Church in the United States. Yes, uh, he has been described, uh, some folks might contest this, but as certainly the most known Catholic priest of the second half of the 20th century. And uh, his, uh, if you will, uh, notoriety comes not simply from his role as leading Notre Dame, but it's really in the Eisenhower administration. He gets a number of presidential appointments to the National Science Board, and then crucial for him to the Civil Rights Commission. Okay. Right at the time when civil rights is the great political moral issue in the country, and there is Father Ted right at the center of it, and he plays a very uh, important role and a beneficial role uh, on that issue, and then it just continues on. So he knows every president moderately well from Eisenhower, certainly Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon. He has an interesting relationship with Nixon. Nixon fires him as uh, the chair of the Civil Rights Commission, even though they had been quite friendly beforehand. But then continuing on up to Carter, he's quite involved with the Carter administration, even though he has reservations about Carter as a president. After that point, he just doesn't understand Reagan. He doesn't yeah, understand yeah. his popularity or whatever. Uh, he's no longer president of Notre Dame. By, uh, he finishes as president in 1987. So he has a more tangential connection to George H.W. Bush and to Bill Clinton and subsequent presidents. But of course, he meets President Obama when he comes to Notre Dame in 2009. So there is a photo of him with every president. Also, uh, he gets an appointment through the intervention of Cardinal Spellman of New York, who was asked to sort of nominate someone to, to be the Vatican's representative at the International Atomic Energy Commission. <laughs> so this was a great deal for him. He could go to Vienna, I think a city that you like well. He goes to Vienna for two weeks for the meeting of the uh, board of the International Atomic Energy Agency and then goes to the Vatican to report on what had taken place at the meeting. So this involves him in meeting Pius XII, John XXIII, but the Pope that he is closest to. And it's, it's actually a friendship relationship. It's not a formal relationship, is Pope Paul VI. And uh, there's almost a, a sort of a brotherly quality to it until 1968 and Humanae Vitae, uh, maybe a topic we come back yeah, to in the so. in the talk. Yeah. Father Ted has more difficulty understanding uh, Pope John Paul II. Right? Well, it yeah, seems I mean, a bit out of sync with him. If this uh, goes on much longer, nobody will need to read the book. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, the inventory of this man's achievement is exhausting. Yeah. Uh, he was a person of enormous energy. Yes, and, and self-confidence. Absolutely. And your treatment is marvelous. It's massively researched. This is, it was a comprehensive delight to read your book. I couldn't thank put you. it down. Oh, thank you. I, you know, Mark Twain said of Henry James, when you put down one of his books, you can't pick it up again. <laughs> but your book is not at all like that. It's so fascinating. But what commends it, especially to me, is it's, it's not uncritical. Uh, I mean, it, you're not naive. It's not full of piety and hagiography. You're prepared to rake this man over the coals. Uh, and absolutely. I think he richly deserves that. We'll get to that in a moment. Absolutely. But I set off, I set off to write a critical biography. Yep. There's enough hagiography about right. Father Ted, particularly around Notre Dame. I set out, I'm a serious historian, and yeah. I told him. I was able to interview him for the book, yeah. and I had done that uh, 
a, a number of years prior to my actually writing it. I waited until his death, until I set about writing it in a serious way. Uh, and I, I, I said up front, I'm, I'm going to write a serious biography. And he welcomed that idea. He welcomed that idea. Yeah, I mean, you really do a great job of crafting a biography in a way that is sharply and yet gently critical. Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly how you would state the thesis, but he set out to create a great Catholic university, and he created a great university. And the Catholic identity is sort of eclipsed in some ways or diluted. You know, but he's larger than life. I mean, it's titled American Priest, but you could almost entitle it American Pope, because if there was a Pope of the American Catholic Church, this man would have been him. You know, and, and he spoke like a Pope, didn't he? I mean, almost ex cathedra most of the time. <laughs> One of your asides. He, he certainly spoke with authority when he spoke. <laughs> I mean, in 1962, he's suddenly festooned onto the cover of Time magazine. Yes, yeah. But I was struck by the, the comment you made that uh, when he took his meals in, in the community of the Holy Cross, he dominated the conversation, and people just automatically deferred to him. And there was no issue on which he did not feel himself qualified to pronounce. And I'm reading that, and I'm thinking to myself, there's something insufferable about that. <laughs> yes, uh, I, didn't, I never found him that way, Regis. I never found him that way, because there was this amazing combination within him of pastoral warmth yeah. He was always this devoted priest. If he could help somebody, he would help somebody. Yeah. Devoted to his mass and his breviary. And uh, folks would uh, excuse the domination of the conversation oh. as offense is the best means of defense. <laughs> right. Uh, right. Because he would be outlining for folks what he was doing, what he was up to, etc. And for the most part, the community was somewhat tolerant yeah. uh, of this. So uh, I don't think anyone ever found him insufferable or repellent. They didn't resent uh, it. Hmm. Uh, there, there was a deference to him yeah. uh, from a pretty early stage yeah. because of what they saw as as they saw it, his success sure. in leading the university. So he himself, Ted, yeah, yeah, Ted got this sort of a special status. Father Ted, as, yeah. as I always called him, got this sort of special status because he was the one leading Notre Dame on to success, right. uh, certainly success in American secular academic terms. You know, he was a, an intellectual, a theologian of sorts. Uh, I didn't know who Father Ted Hesburgh was as an evangelical Protestant pastor, but when I was just beginning to delve into Catholic faith, Catholic history, I came across a book, God, Man, and the World. Yes, that and was it went through two editions. Yeah, and I remember being captured by yeah. not only the apologetic approach, which was so winsome, but it was also <laughs> penetrating and luminous and. I ended up getting the second edition too, just to see what he softened or changed and all of that. But then I found out, oh, he and went on, went on to become the president, president, you know? Yeah. And it was encouraging for me at the time before I realized there was a, a big backstory, you know, yeah. to his presidency. But even in the late 50s, you know, with guys like McNa uh, McNally or Frank McNally, I forget their... Oh, Frank, Frank O'Malley. Frank O'Malley. Yeah, yeah, I mean, great, there were some colorful teacher. figures who Williams. were imparting great Catholic writers to an entire yeah. generation of Catholic undergraduates. Yeah, but he grew weary of all that, right? I mean, he dismissed Father O'Malley 
uh, as Frank O'Malley's a layperson. Layperson. I'm sorry, a lay, but a relic of a bygone bygone era. We've moved beyond that. That and that was pretty. That was pretty shocking. This this is something that I try to reveal. Mm -hmm. Hesburgh starts off as this young, dynamic president of yes. Notre Dame. He's 35 years of age. He's had this meteoric rise to the presidency, and he has almost like a spiritual. Uh, revelation that gives him his mission to create, quote, you said it earlier, mm -hmm. a great Catholic university. And initially, I think he was clearly on the right track. He's writing to Christopher Dawson. Would you right. come? Would you come and help us? Yeah. We'll be a center of American Catholic culture. Right. He's trying to attract Jacques Maritain yeah. to come yes. to the university. He has this yeah. idea also Joseph of Ratzinger. To <laughs> Ratzinger he tries to recruit to the theology department. But in that in that early fifties period, right. he has this idea of Notre Dame will serve as this base, if you will, for the development of Catholic culture in the United States. But then a complicated series of developments, in my view, puts him somewhat off track, off that initial goal right. that he had. Partly, he's drawn into the web of the American establishment. Yeah. He gets drawn into the Rockefeller, Rockefeller Brothers, Foundation. Yes. to the foundation. That was he's there meeting with all these bigwigs. Including of the, Planned Parenthood. Of the liberal establishment. So he's associating with them at the very same time that this criticism of the mediocrity of Catholic higher education is being mounted. You guys would be familiar with Monsignor John yeah, Tracy Ellis's 1955 yeah. article. Yeah. And so Father Ted says, okay, okay, recalibrating, we've got to be excellent, excellent, defined by what secular academic standards are. And so that's where he begins to, begins to sort of worry more about prestige appointments, trying to get folks who are going to raise the academic standards. By the way, some of that was surely needed and necessary. Sure. That's why it's a, a, a more complex story right. than someone simply taking a wrong track. Yep. And then Hesburgh's vision, the, referring back to this book, Hesburgh's vision becomes, well, what a Catholic university has to do is be a place that serves the world. I don't know if you recall, I have a little discussion. He has a 1962 article where he criticizes Cardinal Newman. Right, right, and right. Newman's idea yeah. of a university he goes, well, Newman, you know, he was with all those sort of Oxford types right. and they were just hanging out doing their little tutoring sessions. Right. Now a Catholic university has got to be a place that solves the world's problems. So that becomes, and of course he thinks he is very much in sync right. with the church because Vatican II has arrived on the scene. Gaudium, he, he thinks he's ahead of Gaudium et Spes before Gaudium et Spes right. comes down, where to serve the world. He is very involved in civil rights and he says, this is my living out, my priestly ministry. Right. Right. I'm trying to bring justice for African-Americans and right. take them sure. up from their second class citizenship that they've lived in, you know, for hundreds of years, etc. So in the process, this is my argument, in the process of him having these good ambitions, he loses track of what's going on actually within the university. And I need not tell you folks teaching here of the central importance of who teaches and what is taught. 
Father Ted becomes more and more detached from faculty appointments, from the uh, content of the curriculum, and through the 1960s, which of course is a period of turmoil in American universities, the changes begin to take place. Notre Dame wanting the regard of secular, the secular academy, and uh, by 1970, to some extent, he has uh, lost something of the plot. That's he, a good place. How about, he, how about we stop there? The yep. changes in the 70s is a good place to stop. Uh, stay with us. There's more to come. Clearly, then, Catholic identity is not dependent upon statistics. Neither can it be equated simply with orthodoxy of course content. It demands and inspires much more, namely that each and every aspect of your learning communities reverberates within the ecclesial life of faith. Only in faith can truth become incarnate and reason truly human, capable of directing the will along the path of freedom. In this way, our institutions make a vital contribution to the mission of the church and truly serve society. Pope Benedict XVI, addressed to educators, April 17, 2008. There is a place where education begins and faith and reason connect. Franciscan University of Steubenville's online programs will advance your career through an e-learning experience that's both academically excellent and passionately Catholic. With online degrees taught by full-time professors in theology, catechetics, business, education, and other disciplines, you can earn your master's degree online without changing your lifestyle. Find out more today at franciscan.edu, where your faith and career can connect online. Welcome back. We're discussing Father Theodore Hesburgh, Father Ted. Uh, as I grew up, my father's a graduate of Notre Dame, so I always grew up with Father Ted Hesburgh as a part of our discussion. But we want to talk a little bit about his relationship, obviously, with, as, as Scott, you mentioned, you mentioned in the book, his desire to have a great university, and what does that look like, but a great Catholic university, and how is that different? Yeah. Hesburgh certainly was an ambitious person for Notre Dame and for himself, and uh, he made a calculation looking around at institutions in the United States that he considered great. So they were mainly the Ivy League places, Harvard, Yale, and in particular, he looked at Princeton as a place where he thought, you know, Notre Dame could be sort of a model. He, d he didn't want to replicate Princeton, but he saw it as a model. But a part of that was also, wasn't it have something to do with their money and endowment? Exactly, exactly. He looks at the places that are called great, and right. he sees they all have these big endowments. So what's the common thread? Money. So money becomes extremely important for him. He's a great institution builder. He's a terrific fundraiser. But fundraising is not something now, nowadays at Notre Dame, uh, you know, we're raising large amounts of money. He started off small and uh, built and built. This, however, begins to tie him in to the foundations, gets a Ford Foundation grant in the early 1960s. This ties in, Father Dave, with what kind of university Notre Dame right, has to exactly, be, exactly. because he wants to make it a place that's acceptable to get big foundation so grants. So there's a combination of Ivy League envy as well as secular foundation monies. 
That's powerful combination. That's a the the Ivy League is the sort of modeled, right. emulated. He wants to be in their company, yeah. and then he needs to raise the money to do it. Okay. So he begins to build the endowment, and uh, you know he, he was quite amazed in his later years at how the endowment had grown so right. enormously. Yeah. But that concern with fundraising and money drove a lot of his efforts. In some of those years of the campaign, he would be on the road 200 right. days mm -hmm. a year, yeah. speaking to Notre Dame clubs, visiting donors, well, and all the rest. Didn't that sort of give rise to the joke that what's the difference between God and Father Hesburgh? While God is everywhere, Father Hesburgh is everywhere except <laughs> at Notre Dame. Yes, that uh, certainly. I mean, he was sort of co-opted by the Eastern uh, establishment. Yes, don't you it, think? He, he's not only leaving Notre Dame for fundraising purposes, but for all these outside activities that he's involved in, civil rights hearings in the South and so on. And uh, I think he loved doing that. I know it's probably hard for you to conceive of, but he left Notre Dame and didn't even call back to check in. He would be gone for weeks right. on right. end. Yeah. He had a great deputy for many years, Father Ned Joyce, yes. was the executive vice president. He could leave things steady as in, in Father Joyce's steady hands. I see. No big decision was ever going right. to be made in his absence, I see. and he could proceed ahead with all of his activities. But uh, to get back to the, the sort of question of the Catholic University, okay. I think this desire to model or replicate something of the Ivy League, to be in their company, influences how he wants to develop Notre Dame. And this is particularly in the 1960s and onwards. Mm -hmm. So he never loses the ambition that he's building a great Catholic university. Yeah. But a lot of the model becomes the secular schools. And in order to gain their respect, you have to hire from their, uh, their doctoral uh, degree recipients. You have to build a faculty that is uh, academically uh, sort of comparable to or certainly likely to gain the respect of these Ivy League places. And that changes the nature of faculty hiring from hiring for mission, commitment right. to Catholic mission of the school to hiring for academic prestige. Yeah, I mean, and the fact that the faculty might be faith-filled becomes sort of an irritating uh, uh, distraction. What counts is whether their credentials have been validated by these secular institutions. There are, there are subtle shifts that don't necessarily amount to much until you see the cumulative effect. Exactly, yes. absolutely. You know, so academic excellence, what a great yeah, priority. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. But also balancing that with professors who are going to engage students as great teachers, that can't be compromised. And yet, over time it is. You know, and likewise, critiquing Newman's idea of the university back in 62, I think it was in America Magazine, you know, for being too insular and not changing the world, you know, Again, you want to make it so that a Catholic university is not insular. It is going to prepare students to engage the world. But, you know, over time, academic freedom, you know, and then a research university. And these things just kind of put so much on the one side of the scales that you just get the sense that, you know, over time, this really is going to be a great university 
but not a great Catholic university. That, that vignette that, that you drew about Newman, that was very telling mm-hmm. because it suggested that here's a guy who is sort of Pelagian, who thinks that man can solve all the problems. There aren't mysteries, they're just problems. He drank the same Kool-Aid as the Rockefeller brothers, it seems to me. In fact, you use uh, the metaphor of elixir. He drank the same stuff. Rockefeller really thought, there's no problem I can't solve. If I throw enough money at it, by George, I'm gonna solve it. And Hesburgh, I think, think had the uh, the same myth, the same fixation. Yeah, I I would not dispute that for a moment. Of course, uh, there were problems that he felt with working with the Rockefeller Foundation. So he always drew uh, as an example, the Green Revolution, the uh, application of new technology, the growing of grains, wheat and rice and all the rest, able to feed many more people in the world. And he said, you know, this, this is the kind of research that should be going on. So it's, it's striking that right balance. Uh, he did have, I, I don't want to go out and say he was Pelagian, but he certainly had a view that uh, there were lots of problems that could, could be solved if good people got around the table and worked together on it. Yeah. And the good people he liked were the liberal East Coast right. establishment types who were very keen, you know, in the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, et cetera, to solve these problems. That's where I think it gets him uh, somewhat out of sync uh, with uh, some of the uh, central elements of church teaching. Well, not somewhat out of sync. I I, I mean, I think he he goes AWOL. Uh, He's simply absent from these issues. I mean, he's prepared to suppress his own views, his own convictions, in order to attract this kind of money, and he basks in the attention and adulation that is heaped upon him because he's such a wonderful cooperator. He's working with us. We're developing a a, a brave new world. But with the Rockefellers, that includes contraceptive technology. And Father Ted doesn't say a word about that. So so through through the 60s, he allows a number of conferences to be held at Notre Dame. There's cooperation with Planned Parenthood in the hosting of these conferences, Mm -hmm. and they're exploring birth control. Now, you have to put yourself back in time. He was part of the group who thought that Humane Vitae was going to authorize the use of artificial means of birth control. And he's deeply disappointed and it causes a rupture in his relationship with Paul VI when Humane Vitae is, is brought down. Subsequently, he engages in no public criticism. Right. I think it's, a, it's well phrased when you say he goes AWOL. He yeah. simply avoids the issue. Uh, he had been caught up in all that discussion. You, you would remember all that discussion right. about population. Uh, Paul Ehrlich was right. predicting, population you know, that the, the population of the world was just going to explode. There was going to be vast famines. He was caught up in that. He thought that was one of the big issues that right. the church wasn't really addressing. Right. But then post-1973 and Roe versus Wade, he is always opposed to abortion. Sure. He's always opposed to abortion, but he never makes the life issues one of his 
real issues that he could pay right. you know a lot of attention to by this point yeah. he's risen up he has prestige and i you think it's us. partly because he doesn't want to get out of sync yeah i think you tell the story i think it was at yale where he spoke out with a, yes. a group of female students about abortion and they hissed him and i think you said that he didn't raise it again that, yeah. that wasn't that wasn't a dynamic but, and also did. when carter uh, uh, called him up from his kitchen uh, in, yeah. in Georgia and said, you know, I think I'm having trouble with the, the Catholics. Catholics. Yeah. And, and Father Ted offered to sort of smooth things over for him and advised him not just to nuance, but to keep quiet about the abortion question because Carter privately opposed it, but he counseled him, don't say anything publicly. Yes. That was an opportunity, I think, to give a witness mm. and he failed. Yes, that uh, I think is an area in which Father Ted may have had some regrets himself about his failure. He was very sensitive when asked about the issue. And of course, he always wanted to say, I'm not a one issue person. You know, I'm a sort of Cardinal Bernardine seamless garment person. Yeah. But uh, to his credit, uh, you, you would recall Mario Cuomo oh, comes yes. to Notre yeah. Dame yeah. in response to criticism from Cardinal O'Connor and gives that talk in which he says, I'm privately opposed, but I can't do anything in a public realm about this because there's not a consensus about it. Yeah. Hesburgh did write an op-ed in which he says to Cuomo, oh, Cuomo is very smart and all the rest, but he has an obligation to help build a consensus. Right. He said, that's what we had to do in the civil rights movement. Yeah. And that's what, that's what I believe Father Ted's uh, record would be stronger if he had done on the life questions. Because as uh, Richard John Newhouse used to point out, the civil rights movement and the life questions are connected. They're Other about things. the dignity of the human person. Yeah. And uh, Father Ted's silence is, is something of, uh, of a sadness. Yeah, it's not an accident that those Planned Parenthood clinics are located in black neighborhoods. Exactly. You know, I, I think by that point, the genie was out of the bottle. It was too late, mm -hmm. you know, and so I, I'm drawn back to the period from 1962 to 1967. I think everybody's aware that in 67, Land of Lakes, you know, and yeah. he was a, a key player in that, that, that document that redefines Catholic universities, Catholic higher education in a much more pluralistic mode, Americanizing, perhaps even de-supernaturalizing. But, you know, already the five-year buildup to Land O'Lakes and the fact that they were meeting there year after year in Wisconsin yeah. before that famous agreement is signed by so many big names. It, it seems to me that, you know, that's the period where Vatican observers would say, wow, look at the seismic shifts that are taking place in the Catholic Church yeah. throughout the world. But it's almost as though Hesburgh is the weather vane, you know, the weathercock, because the, the movements that he backs, the support that he gets, the insistence upon a kind of um, pluralism to American Catholic education, it almost anticipates everything that we have come to see in the Catholic Church yes. after Vatican II, for better, for worse. You know, but, you know, Paul VI is a sign of contradiction. You know, he... He issues Humanae Vitae and then just ends up feeling alienated from much yeah. of the established church, you know, the episcopacy and so on. But Hesburgh, I think, is still riding the wave. There's still a sense in which, you know, he, he knows exactly, I mean, even if he holds his opinions, you know, strongly about Cuomo's speech or whatever, he never stops kind of riding the wave as a surfer, you know, and uh, 
capitalizing that's, that's on this. That's a great image. I mean, that's actually a great place to stop with that image All of right. Father Hasberg riding a wave. As a <laughs> Picture that. Yeah, so stay with us. We'll be back. <laughs> In a Catholic university, Catholic ideas, attitudes, and principles penetrate and inform university activities in accordance with the proper nature and autonomy of these activities. In a word, being both a university and Catholic, it must be both a community of scholars representing various branches of human knowledge and an academic institution in which Catholicism is vitally present and operative. Pope John Paul II, Excordia Ecclesiae, August 15, 1990. What if you discovered a university with unmatched science, faculty, and programs? A place where you didn't have to choose science over faith. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith-inspired, student-focused, research-driven programs leading to satisfying careers in medicine, scientific research, engineering, computer science, and many more science and health fields. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, education is more than just a word, it's a discovery. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. You're watching Franciscan University Presents and we are coming to you from our ComArt studio here on the campus of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and all the equipment, and members of our theology faculty, Dr. Regis Martin and Dr. Scott Hahn, and I are discussing American Catholic higher education with our guest, Father Bill Miss Campbell. We've spoken a great deal about Father Hesburgh and his relationship to culture and the church and, and higher education, but we really, I'd like to just focus a little bit for our last section on what makes a great Catholic university? What, what differentiates it from a great university? And, and how, how do we understand what that looks like? And how can we get a clear understanding of that? Yeah, I, I think there are a number of key elements. F firstly, the pursuit of truth, truth with a capital T, truth with a small t, you're seeking to understand God. Uh, you're seeking to flesh out in all the dimensions of human learning, the pursuit of truth. You're providing for your students, however, an education that treats them not just as a brain, not just as a mind you know, that you funnel information into, which sadly a lot of higher education in the United States has become. You're treating them as a whole person mind, soul, heart, spirit, mm -hmm. and the faculty of a Catholic university are going to be concerned with all those dimensions of their students. The sadness that I have about how Notre Dame has developed, and by the way, I, I'm committed to Notre Dame, I love Notre Dame, and there's a battle taking place at Notre Dame for its heart and soul, and there are still wonderful faculty at Notre Dame, but, but, at present, we claim to be a great Catholic university, but we don't offer an integrated curriculum that might prepare young Catholics for the world. We have accommodated to the secular model where it's sort of like the buffet approach. You take a little of this, you take a little of that, and that's our, that's our quote, core curriculum. It needs to be uh, enhanced greatly. 
So a great Catholic university is a place that researches key issues in light of Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And the folks who come there, Catholics and non-Catholics alike, by the way, lots of non-Catholics will want to come to a place that has that as its central conviction. a, A place like that is vastly different from any regular secular university. A place like that knows that there are ultimate ends, that we are pilgrims on this earth. We have to do our best to foster learning, to gain knowledge. That's part of our pilgrim journey. God gave us minds and we're to use them well. But a Catholic university has as its central purpose, uh, you know, praise of Christ Mm -hmm. and allowing people to utilize their virtues. I'm biased, but you said several times a place like that. I think this is a place like that. Franciscan University aims to do that, aims to do all of the things that you just said, and it's, it's really at the heart of our mission. Yeah. You know, since grace builds on nature, you know, and yeah. Christ is the incarnation of divine grace, uh, a Christ-centered approach, and this isn't like, you know, a throwback. This is what Vatican II was calling for in Gaudium et Spes, not just to engage the world, but to mediate Christ to the yeah. world, and Christ opening up humans to themselves in a way you know, so that the explanatory power of the Catholic faith ends up not only being more spiritually satisfying to those who seek comfort, it is scientifically superior as hypotheses go. It just illuminates the dark corners of human experience and all of the sciences if we let that happen, if we let Christ out of the, the cage, but as it were. You know? There's a, a, a stunning irony here uh, because what we're describing Father Hesburgh early on had seized upon. Yes, absolutely. In his own undergraduate experience, I I, I remember you you saying that he was impatient with most of his professors. They didn't really impress him. But there was one exception, one glowing exception, Father Leo Ward, who introduced him to the whole philosophy of Catholic literature. Yeah. Which, which later, I, I think, animated Frank O'Malley yeah. and, and his approach, a Christ-centered you know, centered approach. All of that fell by the wayside. Yes. It, it's almost as if there are two phases to this man's life, as if he were sort of schizophrenic. In the first phase, he's interested in placing theology and philosophy at, at, at the, the summit of the stair. Yeah. And then the other two disciplines, history and literature, the four horsemen, but by the end of the day, these four horsemen have been unhorsed and you know, he's dug a deep ditch and he's buried them in it. And he's, he's with this imitation of the secular model, he wants to be just like Yale or Harvard or Princeton. And that's a Is great you, sadness. Dr. Munn, I, I think you attribute too much uh, to Hesburgh's individual decision. It's not as if he makes the decision to go from that Uh to that. It's if you begin hiring faculty Mm. for academic prestige purposes, et cetera, over time, it's a whole series of individual decisions. This is the crucial importance, which I know you appreciate so well here at Franciscan University, of hiring for mission, hiring faculty who believe in the broad purpose whatever their uh, own specific discipline. So, uh, but Father Hesburgh does go along with the change. I have no doubt about that. Now, Dr. Hahn brought up earlier, Land O'Lakes, 
Land O'Lakes, uh, in some ways, I think gets too much attention, yet it has a sort of symbolic purpose yeah. because it's the moment when Father Hesburgh is sort of wanting to separate off in right. some way right. the university from any institutional authority or relationship with the church. Now, he's a priest in the church. Right. He's not making any radical cut for it, but nonetheless, he doesn't want any outside authority. And by outside authority, he meant the church. Right. The he doesn't want the bishops right. telling him how to run Notre Dame so that he can run it in such a way. But, you know, his description of this is pure caricature. I mean, you quote him as saying, I don't want any Monsignor telling us yeah. what to do yeah. who doesn't know the difference between a university and, and a cemetery. cemetery. Yeah. You know, and then he thinks of the university as the place where the church thinks. Yeah. Yeah. But he I, doesn't I want to have any connection the soul with it, right? the church. <laughs> you know, when Father Jenkins, the current president, came to visit several years ago, he had a sense of the spiritual vitality, and he was grateful. And in the Q&A, I asked him a question about the centrality of the Eucharist, the celebration of the Mass, which for us here is the heart of the whole university. And he agreed completely. I mean, he was, uh, he was not only affirming, he was encouraging, yeah. you know, and there was a real, you know, that this is what has always been at the heart of Notre Dame. We went on a walk afterwards, just for 15 minutes or so, you know, and I said, but the Eucharist is not a private ritual. You know, it isn't just our communal celebration. It's what puts us in touch with the whole body of Christ, you know, including our bishop, especially, you know. And, and you know, the conversation kind of ended so shortly thereafter. But I mean, I think that is the key. I mean, hiring for mission is the internal strategy that has transformed Franciscan University since the 70s. But also this vital, organic union with the bishop and the diocese and the whole church from the Pope down, but especially locally as well. I, I think that coordination is something that uh, doesn't just make for a great university, but a great Catholic university. A couple of thoughts that, that, that there's not this line between the Eucharist that we celebrate in Christ the King Chapel and the classroom. Oh. And that's what my concern is at times some of the universities that have made this split. It's yes. like, okay, that's what you guys do down there, but this is what we do in the classroom. And, and that split I think is fundamentally flawed, that, that the two are not opposed to each other. In fact, the two must come together. But you, you, and you make that point. Uh, I mean, you, you quote, maybe it is Father Hesburgh saying that, you know, the way the truth and the life, that, that's, that's proselytizing. Mm -hmm. But what we do in the classroom is strictly academic, right. as if there were this divorce between discipleship and scholarship, as if faith and reason were really at sword's point. And, and that's flapdoodle. That's nonsense. This, uh, this is why I say Notre Dame has to return back from sort of land of lakes as the sort of guiding spirit, this separation, and adopt Ex Corde Ecclesiae, which of course Father Hesburgh sought to oppose it and to water it down during that period of preparation uh, through the late 80s and into the, the 90s. It, it went against his model, this idea that faith and reason are not somehow or other opposites. Yeah. They're to be part of a unified sure. approach yeah. to education in a Catholic university. Uh, 
for too much uh, at Notre Dame. Uh, now, by the way, there are some terrific Absolutely. faith-filled faculty at Notre yeah. Dame. I want to make that important, You're one of uh, important point, who are concerned. They pray in the classroom. They're concerned about their students' lives beyond the classroom. But there can be this distinction between there's the academic side and then there's campus ministry and the residence halls, there's that side. And the academic side can say, well, they're supposed to take care of the spiritual lives of the students and so on. Uh, avoiding that distinction is a great achievement that you've made here at Franciscan University, and that's one that Notre Dame could learn from. Yeah. You know, the initial impulse to engage the culture back in the 60s was so good, you know, and it was coming at a time where, you know, that was needed. But if you don't engage the culture to transform the culture, you're going to engage the culture and the culture is going to transform you. Yeah. You know, it's going to democratize. It's going to secularize. It's going to monetize. kind of, yeah, it really will monetize it. And, you know, you back yourself into this with a series of small decisions, the cumulative effect of which is a massive seismic shift. But again, it's like tectonic plates that move so imperceptibly. It's subtle, but then it ends yeah. up substantial. And you're like, how did that happen? Well, you explain, but you also give us how could it have happened? What could have been done right? Because I think when I'm reading the book, I'm, I'm realizing, okay, you know, we're poor here at Franciscan University, you know, and we struggle, but it's a really good thing for strength of God to be made perfect in our weakness. I wouldn't mind seeing our endowment grow exponentially. <laughs> yeah, what, what's that line from uh, Martin Buber? Success is not one of the names we ascribe to God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he was an abject failure. He ended up a dead felon on a cross. Yeah. yeah. Hesburgh was very successful. Yeah. Yes, he's very successful in, in worldly terms. There's no doubt about that. He gains all these honors and awards, uh, most of which he sort of appreciated. Yeah. You know, he would say, oh, you know, I don't need another one, but uh, I tell the little story of the honorary degrees. He was quite proud that he had the most honorary Well, that word basking, it, it, you use it quite often because that's what he did, basking in the glow of other men's adulation. And they were mostly secular. The, uh, you know, desire for regard and recognition is in all of us. So I don't want to sort of be casting stones at uh, Father, Father Ted, uh, but I think that is part of what explains some of the limits of his yeah. efforts. He wanted the regard of the people who mattered, yeah. and he saw that as that sort of liberal establishment. And uh, sadly, that can lead you quite astray. And I think one of the texts from Scripture I think of several times is, what does it profit a man to gain? You know, yeah. but I, I actually, I like your title about the, the conflicted, because I've read other works of, of Father Hasberg as well, and, and was touched as a priest, you know, as he yeah. shares his faith life and his devotion to prayer and the rosary and the in the, the, the mass and the mass never central one, one to day, his life. One day in his entire life that he didn't celebrate mass, and and that's why I think the way you've you've captured him, I really appreciated the way you captured. You were, as you mentioned, you were critical when it was necessary to be critical, but you didn't demonize him. You did not demonize no. him, and, and I thought that was very helpful. I I have a deep uh, regard for him as a brother in Holy Cross. And uh, I finish my book by suggesting that a new generation of Holy Cross religious have to do their work 
learning from his experience mm -hmm. and seeing if they can rectify and perhaps navigate Notre Dame back onto a better path. Uh, we have some big challenges in that regard, let me say, that's for sure. Okay, well, uh, thank you so much. We've got one last segment, so we just invite you to stay with us. By its very nature, each Catholic university makes an important contribution to the Church's work of evangelization. It is a living institutional witness to Christ and His message, so vitally important in cultures marked by secularism, or where Christ and His message are still virtually unknown. Moreover, all the basic academic activities of a Catholic university are connected with and in harmony with the evangelizing mission of the Church. Pope John Paul II, Excordia Ecclesiae, August 15, 1990. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've come to our final segment. So Regis, if you could start us off with your thoughts. Yeah, he was a, a complicated guy. I, I think uh, we can agree, and uh, I give you credit for having fleshed that out. Uh, it's not one-dimensional, and certainly you don't demonize him, and you don't canonize him uh, either. He was complicated, but very charming uh, as well. I think you mentioned that early on, that lots of people uh, were, were, were uh, not immune to those charms, his blandishments, but he liked praise. He liked people to uh, not worship him, but revere him, venerate him, think well of him. And yet he doesn't think all that well of others, uh, like Pope Paul. Uh, I thought the treatment of Paul was really shabby. I mean, not only did he misunderstand Humanae Vitae, but he felt as if he were personally betrayed by this man, by this pope, and he sort of sundered the friendship. That to me is inexplicable. And, and to have this devotion to the mother of God, which seems quite sincere, yes. and not to understand anything about the nuptial meaning of the body, or to grant some tentative sympathy to what Paul is trying to defend in a, in a most beautiful document, suggests that he is totally out to lunch, completely out of touch with the deepest currents of, of truth and faith and life. It, you, you end with this passage from Maritain about maybe he was kneeling before the world yeah. a little too much, and, and I would have to agree. And I, let me end with this passage from Peggy, one of my, my great heroes. He said, we'll never know what sins were committed by those men who were afraid that they would not appear to be sufficiently progressive. And I think he wanted more than anything to appear in the, in the eyes of the world as this wonderfully progressive, up-to-date guy. And at what cost? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Regis. Scott. Yeah, the book gives us an object lesson, not only in a man, but in an institution too. You know, and it reminds me of what our Lord says about trying to serve God and mammon. You can't, mm -hmm. but for whatever reasons, we keep trying, you know, and he's not the only one. Um, but I would look and say, you know, the mission to engage the culture has always got to begin with seeking the mind of Jesus Christ. The mind of Christ has got to be along with the heart of our Savior, you know, the, the foundation and the frame for any Catholic university. 
I would also add that the, the magisterium, you know, the local ordinary, and all of the priests of the community, Holy Cross, but also in the South Bend, Fort Wayne Diocese, I mean, that marriage could have and should have happened, you know, and at a certain points. But really, the, the main lesson for us is what can we do here or wherever we are? Mm. Because I, I read this and I'm thinking, okay, in our poverty, our Lord is accomplishing things that will lead to the riches, not only for our students, but this faculty. I've been a part of this for 30 years, and I'm, I marvel. I know all of the faults, or at least many of the warts, but what God does with faithfulness, yeah. a little bit goes a long way. I mean, my, my oldest son has a doctorate from Notre Dame in theology. Mm. My son-in-law has a doctorate from the Medieval Institute. I am so grateful for all of the good our Lord is doing still, and I'm praying but at the same time, we don't have to wait for that ship to completely turn around to do a whole lot of good for our Lord and for his people and for our culture as well. So thank you. This, you know, this ought to be a New York Times bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Scott. I hope you will encourage your audience, Scott. <laughs> yes, to I certainly will. Not to mention the movie rights. We established that, <laughs> Father Bell. Well, I want to express my thanks to you, Father Dave, for allowing me to be present with these two wonderful faculty members here at Franciscan, and to thank you for all your work at Franciscan. I, uh, I wrote this uh, book to shed light on Father Hesburg and the larger stories, as I mentioned right at the outset. Uh, he was always a devoted priest, and uh, he uh, extended many kindnesses to individuals. That's why, uh, in part, uh, so many people remember their encounter mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. uh, he has this long list of people for whom he was able to extend a kindness. So I, I want to make sure that that is understood by Absolutely. all the viewers, that uh, this is a complicated person. I titled the book American Priest, and there's uh, something in Father Ted that's a sort of deep American patriotism. Yeah. He was an assimilationist. He wanted his Catholic university to fit in with the broad American model. Mm. So that brings some strengths with it. Yeah. You're located in the United States, but it also, of course, brings dangers if you assimilate too much such that you lose your distinct identity. And that is part of the path that Father Ted trod at Notre Dame. I think in some moments towards the end, he may have even had some moments of reflection about where this direction is taking us. He was a person who worried about some of the appointments that were made at Notre Dame subsequent to his being president. So he's a complicated man. I hope viewers might be interested to follow up and find out more about him. If they do, they'll learn more about Catholic higher education and more about the United States in the last half of the 20th century. Thank you so much, Father. And uh, again, the, the book is American Priest. I highly encourage everybody to read it. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and just a little bit more what Father has done in regards to Catholic higher education in America, we have a pamphlet that will be available for you if you simply write to faithandreason.com or call the number that you're going to see on the screen in the bottom. Uh, this would be available to you. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, I, I, got, I saw the book. I don't honestly know how I found out about it. 
And I got it on my Kindle and started reading it. And I called uh, our, our dean here, our vice president in charge of academics, who's a graduate of Notre Dame. And I said, we have to get Father Miss Campbell here. Uh, I just thoroughly enjoyed it and thoroughly enjoy you. Um, and in some ways it makes me sad because of the potential you know, that, mm. that Notre Dame has, the potential that it has. And yet I think that in some ways it's, it's missed that. And, and I reflect on what we were saying about what is a Catholic, a Catholic education, that in the classroom and in the faith life that these things come together. And actually, Dr. Martin, I remember a course sitting in your class and I was a student and it was a, course, a class that you were talking about how the church is holy and how she is scandalous and, and we embrace all that is. Yeah. And that had a profound impact on this 22-year-old kid. And it, it wasn't what was going on necessarily in the chapel, which had a great impact on me, but it was sitting in your class that one morning. Or another course uh, by one of our professors, uh, Dr. Minto, who teaches uh, scripture. You weren't here yet. But these, these faculty members who, who were intellectual and smart and and good teachers, but loved the Lord and, and wanted to serve the Lord. And obviously I graduated from Franciscan University and joined my religious community and have been a part of the university for 35 years now. And, and it's a grace and a blessing. And I think what we're trying to develop here, I would like to think is, is perhaps what Father Hesburgh wanted, was, was a great Catholic university. So thank you so much. Thank I invite you. you if you just close us with prayer. Oh, let us pray. Lord our God, we give thanks for Franciscan University. We pray for all those who teach and study and learn here. Pray also for the University of Notre Dame and for all those involved in Catholic higher education. Uh, guide and bless our work. And uh, I want to pray the prayer that was Father Hesburgh's favorite prayer. Come Holy Spirit and may each of us be blessed. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Bless you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381 or call 740 Two eight three six three five seven.